1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 17. We'll begin tonight by uh, reading our text, text together this evening. And follow along as I read aloud from verse 17 of 1 Peter chapter 3. For it is better if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when the long, once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. I've entitled tonight's lesson, When God's Will is Unfair. When God's will is unfair. Life isn't fair. No doubt you've heard those words many times. Maybe you've even said them yourself. And when we hear those words, how do we want to respond? By saying, well, it should be. Something in us bristles when we are the subject of unfair treatment. That is, at least when the unfair treatment makes life harder. Isn't it curious? We don't mind a little unfair treatment if we benefit from it. My slice of cake is just a little bit bigger than yours. I'm okay with that, right? The truth is that life is not fair, nor should we want it to be. Because if life were totally fair as we define it, then we would all be doomed to hell. Now, the theme of suffering is woven throughout the book of 1 Peter. And when we come to 1 Peter 3, 17 through 22, we find it once again. And in this passage, we are told directly that it is better to suffer unfairly than to suffer fairly. Suffering fairly means that you've done something wrong and you deserve it. Suffering unfairly means that you did not do anything wrong to deserve it. But if that kind of suffering is God's will, then it is the best thing for us. Now that's not an easy truth to accept when we are experiencing the unfairness. When we're receiving that unfair treatment, we don't automatically think, oh, this is great, this is good, this is the best thing. So to help us understand the benefit of unfair treatment, we're reminded of what Jesus did for us. It was God's will for Jesus to suffer for our sin. Was that fair? No. But it was right. And it was good. So the next time you find yourself in a position where God's will seems unfair to you, remember that Christ suffered for your sake and follow His example of patiently enduring unfair treatment. Let's see how this is revealed to us here from this passage. Notice with me, first of all, the will of God from verses 17 and 18. 
Peter begins by saying, For be it is better if the will of God be so, that she suffer for well-doing than for e uh, evil-doing. So he is, he's beginning this short section here by giving this premise that suffering unfairly is actually better. Why is it better? In verse 18, he gives us the example of Jesus Christ, that he suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He's pointing us once again to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And truly, the gospel is the ultimate example of unfair suffering. Because you have someone that deserved to be treated better than anyone. That is Jesus. And he was treated worse than anyone has ever been treated. And then add on top of that, that Jesus had total power to avoid that suffering, and yet he chose to endure unfair abuse for you and for me. Peter has already reminded us of this. Look back in chapter 2 at verses 20 and 21. He said, For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Peter says, back in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, that when Christ suffered, it was the just suffering for the unjust. Christ is the just one. That is, he is perfectly righteous. He's perfectly right. He is the sinless son of God. We are the unjust. We are sinners. We deserved punishment for our sins. Ezekiel 18.4 says, Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. That's what we deserve. But Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, the Bible says of him that in 1 John 3, 5, and ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Never has there been a more unfair punishment than what Jesus took for us. Peter says in verse 18 that Jesus did this, that he might bring us to God. We were the sheep that had wandered astray. We were alienated from God by our sin. But Jesus took our punishment so that we could be reconciled to God. That's the idea of bringing us to God. God the Son came to us so that he might bring us to himself. Think about the importance of this statement here. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses of Scripture, I refer back to often because they say so much about what the gospel really means. Verse 20 says, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. As sinners, we cannot come to God on our own. 
Someone must do something to reconcile us. We were the ones who broke that relationship by sinning. And it was Jesus who took our punishment so that that relationship could be restored. It was not fair for Jesus to suffer for our sins, but that is the message of the gospel. But not only did he suffer, that's only half the story. Peter goes on to say that he was put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. The other half of the story is that Jesus also rose from the grave to give us eternal life. He died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. That is the gospel. And Peter's emphasis here is on the role of the Holy Spirit in the resurrection. And that's in contrast to the human flesh of Jesus. He was put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. His flesh died, but the Spirit is more powerful than the flesh. And it was through the Spirit that Jesus rose from the grave. And here's the wonderful truth is the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the grave dwells in every believer guaranteeing eternal life. Romans 8, 11, But if the Spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Christ's resurrection guarantees our eternal life. Now his point here is that since Christ suffered unfairly for us, we should be willing to suffer unfairly for him if that's God's will for him. Notice that expression, if the will of God be so. We should not go looking for suffering. We don't look for persecution. But if it should come to us, we should not be surprised. We shouldn't get angry. We shouldn't shake our fist at the world and complain. We should accept it as God's will and rejoice that we can suffer a little for Him who suffered so much for us. If the will of God be so. But then notice secondly here, the waiting of God from verses 19 through 20. Notice again what he says in verse 19. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedience, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Now, remember from earlier in our study of this book, when we were first uh, learning how Peter communicated, it seemed like he liked to go on a lot of rabbit trails. But we learned that what he does is he actually kind of builds these truth pyramids. So he'll start with one point, and from there he'll build out into a lot of kind of interconnected truths. And so, no, he's not going on a rabbit trail here. What he's saying in verses 19 and 20 about Noah and the flood and all of that has everything to do with the topic at hand, which is suffering unfairly. So he stated that Jesus was raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit. He now reveals that Jesus also preached to souls in the Old Testament through that same Holy Spirit. This is what verse number 19 is saying. Listen to it again. By which, that is by the Spirit that raised him from the dead, he, that is Jesus, 
went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Now, this is a verse of scripture that is a little bit difficult to understand. We're going to try and simplify it tonight and come to an understanding of it. Um, but uh, it's given some people a little bit of, uh, um, well, they sprained their theological brain sometime when they approach verses like this. I was telling uh, the kids uh, tonight uh, that uh, one of the ways that Bible scholars and commentators deal with verses like this. If you read through their commentaries, they just skip it all together. We're not going to do that. We're going to try and understand what it's saying here. Really, the question is, who are these spirits in prison? What is he talking about here? Now, there's various opinions about this. One popular one is that this is referring to the the time between Jesus when Jesus died and when Jesus rose again, and that this is referring to Jesus going to hell and preaching to spirits in hell. However, if you look at this immediate context, the following verse, Peter's referring to the days of Noah. And so it's in this context here of of Jesus, uh, of something to do with the days of Noah. So who are these spirits in prison? Well, let's think about it. When, When Peter wrote this, where were the spirits of those who were alive in Noah's day. They were already in eternity, right? Because they all died. The only ones that were saved were Noah and his family, and they had also died, okay? So the spirits in prison is referring to the unbelievers of Noah's day. They've died, and now their soul is in that eternal prison that we call hell. So, So Peter's point is that he's saying that Christ preached... To them, those souls, those spirits, through the Holy Spirit, remember, by which, that is by the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit that was working through Noah. Now, you may be scratching your heads saying, I don't, I don't see that. Well, let's, let's play connect the dots, all right? If you listen to, listen to me preach and teach any length of time, you know I like to play connect the dots with Scripture. Why? Because the Bible is its best own commentary. So let's see what the Bible says about this. First of all, turn to Genesis chapter 3. Excuse me, Genesis chapter 6. And I promise if you stick with me, you'll see that this, this, there is a big, very big point he's trying to make here that ties back into the, su- the subject. Genesis chapter 6, this is uh, the beginning of the story of Noah. Look at verse number 3. And the Lord God, and the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be in 120 years. Okay, from that verse right there, we learn a couple things. We know that from the verses around this, that the, the condition of the world was very wicked at this time. So this verse tells us that God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, was striving with men. He was working to try and bring mankind as a whole and individually to a place of repentance over their sin. So we know that, first of all. Second of all, notice here that God gave them, from the time of this saying in verse number 3 of chapter 6, 120 years. 120 years time to repent. Now, 
what happened during that 120 years? Well, God told a man named Noah to build a really big boat. And it took him about 100 years to do that. Have you ever wondered what was Noah doing that whole 100 years? Well, a lot of it was spent building a boat. It's a really big boat. How many of you have had the chance to go to the Ark Encounter up in uh, Kentucky? Oh, if you haven't gone, gone there, put it on your bucket list. It is amazing. It's a, it is truly mind-blowing to see. They've done such a good job demonstrating just how possible it would have been for Noah to build the ark. But it was still a very big boat. So a lot of that time during that 100 years, he would have been just building the ark. But you know what else he was doing? He was preaching. You say, well, Genesis 6 doesn't say anything about that. Well, look and listen to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. It says, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. While he was pounding, he was also preaching. He was proclaiming what? Righteousness. So the spirit that moved Noah to proclaim that message was the same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead and, turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 11, talking about the writers of the Old Testament, says, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. The same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead led Noah to preach what he preached was striving with men in Noah's day that is called the Spirit of Christ in 1 Peter 1.11. See that? We just played connect the dots. And what the picture draws for us is that Christ was proclaiming, preaching through the Holy Spirit to those unbelievers in Noah's day that they needed to repent and get right with God. One commentator summarizes it this way. They, this is the spirits that are in prison, they were men in the flesh when Christ preached to them by His Spirit, speaking in Noah. But after they were dead, their spirits were shut up in the infernal prison, detained like the fallen angels. So when he says spirits in prison, that's who he's talking about. The unbelievers in Noah's day, who died in their sin. So for a hundred years and more, while Noah was preparing the ark, wicked man had the chance to repent and be saved from the flood. This is, this is Peter's point here. Is that Christ gave them a chance. God is very long-suffering because He does not want anyone to go to hell. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But sadly, not all do come to repentance. Not all turn from their sin and accept God. Not all make that change of mind that results in a change of direction. 
Because in contrast to the, the vast majority of mankind that rejected the message of righteousness, there were only eight souls that were saved. How were they saved? They believed God, and they got on the boat. They entered the ark at God's invitation, and thus they were saved from the flood. Everyone had a chance, but not everyone believed. Only those who had faith were saved. The rest were sent to that eternal prison called hell because they rejected God's gift of salvation. God is a God of patience and mercy, but He's also a God of justice and holiness. Christ suffered so that all those who believe might be saved, but all those who reject the salvation that God offers will face the consequences of their choice. God gave man in Noah's day more than enough time to repent. And only eight chose to believe. God will only wait so long, and then judgment will come. And then Roman numeral three, let's take a moment to talk about the water of baptism from verse 21. Here's another verse that will give some people's ecclesiastical heartburn. Look at verse 21 back in 1 Peter chapter 3. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you need to be aware that there are people who believe that you are saved from your sin by being baptized that by going through the ritual, you are saved. And people who believe that oftentimes will point to a verse like this one, if not this particular verse, and say, well, the Bible says, baptism doth also now save us. So that's why you have to be baptized to get saved. Well, the Bible does say that, but you know what? It says a whole lot of other things too. And we have to understand Scripture in its own context because this is not the only thing the Bible says. And a simple look at the context shows that this verse means exactly the opposite of what those people are trying to say it means. First of all, we keep this verse in context. We're talking about Noah and his family. All right, simple question. How were Noah and his family saved? You, you can tell me. Okay, by the ark. Many of you said that. All right, by the ark, okay? Did the water save them? No. No, no, the, the ark saved them from the water. Okay, so that's, that's first of all on its face, you're flipping the illustration when you say, no, you got to get wet in order to get saved. No, you got to stay dry. You're going to keep this illustration intact, okay? So that's first of all. And that's your next blank there. No one's family were not saved by the water. They were saved by the ark. Being in the boat. That's how they were saved. The ark did the saving, if you want to put it that way. As they passed through the water, they had already been saved by being placed in the ark. Following so far? Okay, second of all, this verse very clearly says that it is not referring to to merely a physical baptism. Notice it, it says, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. 
That's a physical baptism. That's taking a bath. Okay? It's not putting away the filth of the flesh, but it's the answer of a good conscience toward God. That is what saves us. So salvation does not come by being immersed in water or poured or sprinkled for that matter. But it comes by placing your faith in God. Having faith in the gospel is what saves. And that should be followed by baptism. But the baptism is just a figure, it says. Notice that word, figure, the like figure. So this is an illustration, it's an, it's an example of something. Just like the waters in Noah's uh, day served to demonstrate that he and his family were safe in the ark, water baptism today is only a demonstration that we are already safe in Jesus, that we're already saved. If, if Noah and his family had gotten on the ark and it never rained, it never flooded, then you would say, well, that was a waste of 100 years. What would you do that for? But the fact that the flood came and they floated on top of the water and were saved from destruction proved that when they had faith in God, God said build an ark, they built an ark, and they did what God said, that they were saved. That's what he's saying here. That the baptism does not save us from our sins in the eternal sense, but it demonstrates that we are saved from our sin. That's what baptism does, even today, because baptism pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for our sins. And it's meant to be a public declaration that you have placed your faith in Jesus. Salvation does not come through that physical ritual. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and you get baptized, the only difference is you go in a dry sinner and you come out a wet sinner. But you're still a sinner who needs to be saved. Only faith in the gospel is what saves us. Salvation is received by grace through faith. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So baptism is just the figure. It's just the picture. It's just the demonstration. It is faith that saves us. And then number four, from verse 22, we note the wonderful Savior. says in verse 22 of Jesus who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him now Peter concludes this section by reminding the believer that the resurrection is not the end of the story either Jesus died yes he rose again yes but then something else happened and that is he's gone into heaven and he's on the right hand of God after Jesus rose from the grave, the Bible tells us that he ascended back to heaven where he retains his sovereign authority. Now here's a word that you need to learn. The ascension is the word. The ascension is what we call the event when Jesus physically went up in the air through the clouds and then back to heaven. 
It's recorded for us at the end of the book of Luke and in Acts chapter 1 and referred to in many other places, such as we have seen here in 1 Peter chapter 3. And for sake of time, we're not going to go back and look at that, but it is a very important part of the story. One reason that it's an important part of the story is because of its connection with the second coming of Christ. In Acts chapter 1, when the disciples were standing there staring up into heaven, wondering what had just happened as Jesus ascended up away from them, an angel appeared to them and said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. It's a promise of the return of Christ. Jesus went up in the clouds and he will come back again, first in the clouds and then to the earth. But Peter's bigger point here is what happened after Jesus ascended. And in the meantime, what is Jesus doing right now? He tells us that he's now on the right hand of God. That's pretty significant because the right hand of a king's throne was a position of honor. Remember when the, the disciples, some of the disciples asked Jesus to grant their request? And he said, well, what is it? That's smart, by the way. Don't tell someone yes before you know what they're asking. What is it? What's your request? Oh, nothing much. Just grant that we might sit on your right hand and your left when you come into your kingdom. And all the other disciples got mad. Why did they get mad? Probably because they didn't think to ask the question first. No, because that was very arrogant of them to assume that they would receive the positions of honor. And when it comes to the position of honor by the throne of God, that is reserved for Jesus Christ alone. He is on the right hand of the throne of God. He's in that highest position of honor, next to the highest throne, the throne of God. Some verses you can look up later about this, Mark 16, 19, Ephesians 1 and verse number 20. But let me read to you Ephesians 1 and verse number 3. Speaking of Christ, it says, Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That's what Jesus did when he ascended back to heaven. And Jesus being at the right hand of God has very special meaning for us who are believers, we who are believers. Because while Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, he is interceding for us. He intercedes for us. Romans 8, 34, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. The best way to, I think I can think of to illustrate this is, is, is like a defense attorney. So if you're going um, before a judge, you've been accused of a crime, you hire an attorney to defend you. The job of that attorney is to prove your innocence. And that is what Jesus does for us. He proves our innocence. He declares that we are righteous through His blood. But Jesus being at the right hand of God also means that He is sovereignly ruling over everything. Notice how Peter states it here. He says that, that angels and authorities and powers are made subject unto Him. Ephesians 1.21 says, He is far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. So what does all of this have to do with unfair suffering. This, the end result of Jesus' ultimate humiliation 
through unfair suffering is his total exaltation above everyone and everything else. That's the point. Yes, Jesus suffered unfairly. But because he suffered unfairly, you and I can be saved. And Jesus, because he suffered unfairly and endured that humiliation, received the ultimate exaltation. And Philippians chapter 2 says that at one day, everyone's going to recognize that. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So sometimes God's will is going to seem unfair to you. You're going to be confused by it. And because you don't understand it, you'll be tempted to doubt whether it is truly God's best, truly the best. But remember that God's will is always best, and the gospel proves it. Just look at what Jesus did. That proves it. So believe that God's will is best, even if it seems unfair. Dear Heavenly Father, it is beyond us to understand fully why you loved us enough to send Jesus to die on the cross in our place, or why he would so willingly endure that unfair suffering for us. But Lord, we believe it. And when we are tempted to question the goodness of your will, may we remember that when we don't understand what you're doing is especially when we must just trust. We know you are good. We know that your will is best. So help us to accept it and help us to have faith in you, we pray. And I ask these things in Jesus' name.